Well, good morning, everybody. It is so wonderful to see you here today. For those worshiping online, we are always thrilled that you tune in. My name is Tim Park. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time here, a special welcome to Eve Free Church. We're so excited because God is doing amazing things. He's doing amazing things on our campus, but not only here on our campus, but this morning he was doing amazing things across the street at the Arco gas station. Did you know that we had members of our church at the station this morning greeting people with big smiles and gas cards and sharing the love of Jesus by sharing these gas cards. And uh, gas is not cheap these days, is it? And so our church members were ministering to our community by sharing gas cards, sharing the love of Jesus, inviting them to church. And it was amazing. And so uh, I see some of them here who were there this morning. I stopped by early this morning. Can we give a big thank you to our gas team? We had members out on the corner with the the nice, bright, colorful flags. Uh, We had people sharing about Jesus. And you know what? I got there this morning, about maybe about 8 o'clock, and and I saw one of our members praying with somebody who stopped by to fill up his gas tank. This person wanted prayer. And so our church member, I saw him with his hand on this man's shoulder praying for him. It's just amazing to see that. And I got to overhear conversations of our church members sharing about the love of Jesus, inviting these members of our community to Easter service or any service for that matter. And it was just, it was special. It was special. And so thank you to our team who was there uh, ministering in a very special way. God is moving in this city. Amen. Amen. And he is moving here right now. Can I give you some more good news? All right? We always love good news. We have a brand new addition to our E-Free Church family. This past Thursday, Thursday early morning, baby Oliver was born. Baby Oliver William Tran was born to Cindy and Jonathan Tran. Okay, sometimes you'll see, you know, his, Oliver's dad up here singing as part of our worship arts team. Uh, but baby Oliver, he could not be any cuter. Uh, he... Uh, He was born early Thursday morning after a long, long, long evening of labor for mom. And uh, mom is doing well. She's resting at home. Baby is doing well. He's as beautiful as can be. And so when you see Jonathan and Cindy next time, congratulate them. And welcome to our E-Free Church family, Oliver William Tran. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series through the book of Mark servant king. And we are here on this Sunday morning, the first Sunday of April, and we come to chapter 4. Before we get to uh, our passage, I want to give you the title for this morning's message. The title is Ears to Hear. Ears to Hear. And we'll be in chapter 4, and we'll look at the entire, well, I'll actually say the first 34 verses of Mark chapter 4. And before we open up to our passage, I thought it would be good for us to be reminded of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us in his gospel. In Act 1, we see 
take place in Galilee, a city called Galilee. And Act 1 is chapters 1 through 8a. So that's Act 1. It takes place in Galilee. And we see Jesus performing miracles and healing people. And people are amazed by what they see. And they ask a question. And the question they ask is, who is this Jesus? That's Act 1 in Galilee, chapters 1 through 8a. Act 2 takes place in chapters 8b to 10. And that takes place on the way from Galilee to another city. And in Act 2, it's the disciples who ask a question. In Act 1, the people ask a question. Who is this Jesus? In Act 2, the disciples ask a question. And they ask, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And they wrestle with that question because the answer to that question impacts their lives. Wow, if this is going to happen to Jesus... What does this mean for my life? And by the way, that's the same question that you and I must ask ourselves. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Because if we follow Christ, what does that mean for us as the 21st century disciples? Act 3 takes place from chapters 11 to 16. And that takes place in a city called Jerusalem. And in this act, the focal point is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And by the way, over the April 15, 16, 17 weekend, Easter weekend, we're going to jump ahead to Act 3 because we're going to look at that particular act on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so three acts Mark presents to us in his gospel. Today, we are still in Act 1 because we come to chapter 4. And again, people ask the question, who is this Jesus? Most of the people ask this question. Now, I say most because not everybody asked that question. There was a group, another group, and they were asking a very different question. And this group, which comprised of a lot of religious leaders, they asked the question, who does he think he is? You see, they were like, no, no, no. You are uh, violating our traditions and our norms. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And what we'll see today is this. That unless you and I have ears to hear, we will also miss the message that Jesus brought with him when he preached about the kingdom of God. Of God. And so today we're going to look at a series of four parables as laid out for us in chapter 4. And Jesus spoke a lot in parables. In his ministry, he did much of his teaching in the form of parables. So it'll be important for us to know a little about parables. And so I'll define parables to begin our time. Here's a definition of parables. Parables are stories, especially those of Jesus told to provide a vision of life, especially life in God's kingdom. I'll say that again. Parables are stories, especially those of Jesus, told to provide a vision of life, especially life 
in God's kingdom. And I'm going to ask you to keep those words in mind. In God's kingdom. God's kingdom, that's an important term that will kind of unfold throughout this discussion this morning. Literally, a parable was to throw alongside. It was a comparison, a, a visual story that held a deeper spiritual truth. And the key to understanding parables is to recognize that parables in general have one main idea. So keep that in mind. When, you, when we read parables, think one main idea. And we'll develop this thought throughout this chapter. And as we think about the question of what is a parable, there's another important question, and that is why? Why did Jesus speak in a form that often left people kind of scratching their heads and filled with confusion? And so it's important for us to know why Jesus spoke in parables. Think about this. Have you ever been in a conversation with a group of people and somebody says something, and everyone's laughing, except you. It's no fun, is it, to be on the outside. Let's say you're in a group of three people, and the two others, they tell a joke to each other, and they're just laughing, and you're like, whoa, whoa, I don't get it. It's no fun to be on the outside looking in. And so why would Jesus deliberately speak in a form that often left people feeling confused and on the outside? Well, Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, gives us the answer as to why Jesus spoke in parables. So we're going to begin in verses 10, 11, and 12, and then we'll go back to verse 1. So let's go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. We'll start in verse 10. I'll read to you verses 10 through 12. When he was alone, Jesus, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may, ever, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And so Jesus tells his disciples and the others who were with them, that the secret or the mystery has been given to them. And he implies that it has not been given to those on the outside, which included the unbelieving religious community and the multitudes. Now, you might think, well, that's unfair. Why would Jesus deliberately exclude them? Well, in verse 12, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And if you were to go back to Isaiah, the context is the people of God repeatedly rejected his grace. And as such, they were on the outside. They kept rejecting his grace. So as long as they did not receive it, they were excluded from that mystery, from that secret. You know, the book of John tells us that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables. 
You know, when Jesus Christ uh, began his ministry, he ushered in the spiritual kingdom. One day in the future, he will come back. He will, he will establish his physical kingdom. But when he came, he established his spiritual kingdom. In theological terms, we can understand it by the, the phrase, already but not yet. So you and I, as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we live in the already but not yet period of God's kingdom. We live in the spiritual kingdom of God. Jesus ushered in that kingdom. One day he will come back. He will establish his physical kingdom. That's the not yet. So we are in this already but not yet. And here's how the parables relate to that. The parables give us a description of the lifestyle and the relationships within that kingdom of which you and I currently reside in. So, with that in mind, let's now go back to verse 1, and we'll look at the first of four parables in this chapter. I'll read to you verses 1 through 9. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In this parable, we see four different kinds of soils. We see the hard path. And the, the seed that was thrown onto the hard path, it didn't penetrate because it was so hard. And the birds came and ate up the seed. The second soil was this shallow soil, shallow soil of decent seed or, or, or soil. But then underneath is this layer of hard rock. And so when the seed penetrated the top layer, it started to grow a root. But when the root hit that hard rock, it died. The third soil was full of thorns. It choked out the plant. And then you had the final soil, the good soil. Now, it's possible that some here this morning are hearing this parable for the very first time. It's possible that some here this morning have studied this parable in detail over the years. I'm thankful that we all have the opportunity to look at this parable together this morning. Did you know that this parable has been the subject of many debates over the years? Many discussions? This one parable alone has been the subject of countless sermons and articles and commentaries and books. 
And one question that often comes up when studying this parable is, how many of the soils represent saved persons? That's a question that often comes up when people study this parable. How many of the four soils represent saved persons? Is it only the fourth soil, one soil? Or maybe could it include the second soil? Maybe possibly even the third soil. But certainly it could not contain the first soil, right? Because the birds came and snatched up the seed. And so that's often a question that's asked. How many of the soils represent saved persons? Another question that's often asked when studying this parable is this. Can a person lose salvation? Once a person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, can that person lose that salvation? So I want you to hold on to these questions for just a bit because we're going to come back to these questions after we read verses 13 to 20. So let's continue on. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Have you ever heard of the term backsliding Christian? It's a term that's often associated with somebody who at one time was passionate about Christ, gave his or her life to Christ, right? Maybe at a retreat, a youth retreat, person raised his or her hand, right? Came up and was full of tears and accepted Jesus. I, I want to live for Jesus. And then later on, maybe fell away. Okay? Well, this passage has led some to conclude that, well, that person represented by the second soil uh, was never saved to begin with because it was so shallow, it didn't last. And also, on the other hand, it has led some to think, well, that person had genuine faith, but then lost that faith somewhere down the line. Again, the two questions that are most commonly asked when studying this parable are, how many of the soils represent saved persons? And can a person lose salvation. But what if I were to suggest to you that those two questions are not necessarily the proper questions to ask in response to this parable? 
What if I were to suggest to you that the main point of this parable is not about salvation in the first place? Keep in mind, parables have one main idea, and they describe life in where? God's kingdom. And so the parables of Jesus describe the lifestyle and the relationships that are to occur within the kingdom of God. And so I don't believe this parable was given to the original audience or to us to have us question our salvation. You see, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. Amen? No one can take that away from us. No one can snatch that away from us. We have that assurance. May I suggest to you that this parable is all about faithfulness and fruitfulness. That's the main idea of the parable of the sower. Faithfulness and fruitfulness. One day in the future, all followers of Jesus will appear before him. That includes us, those who came before us, and those who will come after us. All followers of Jesus will stand before Jesus, and we will be judged based on our faithfulness and our fruitfulness. Now, this is not a judgment that determines where we will spend eternity, okay? As followers of Jesus, our eternity in heaven is secure. This is a different kind of judgment. This is a judgment where you'll stand before Jesus based upon our faithful and fruitful works, and we will be given heavenly rewards. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.10. Keep your place in Mark. Go over to 2 Corinthians 5.10. And the Apostle Paul talks about this future judgment for all followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In theological terms, this is known as the Bema Seat Judgment. Bema, B-E-M-A. Bema simply means platform, like the stage. And so one day in the future, Jesus will be on his Bema, and we will stand before him, and he will judge us based upon our faithfulness and fruitfulness, or lack thereof. Isn't it possible that in different seasons of our life in Christ, that we didn't bear much fruit? Isn't that possible? Maybe you can think about your own life. Maybe in some season you go, I, I know I was saved, but I just was not producing fruit. I felt far away from Jesus. I felt so distant from him. I had faith, but I just, I wasn't growing. 
I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't ministering. I was just so distant from Jesus. And then maybe there are other seasons of life where you were just growing. You did not miss a devotional. You did two devotionals a day. You were on fire for Jesus. And then maybe there were seasons where you had a lot of ups and downs. That's probably most of us. Spiritual fluctuations, ups and downs, ups and downs. You know, the reality is this. I think every one of us could stand to bear more fruit, right? Every one of us. There's certainly more room on our platter for more fruit. Amen? Yeah, we could bear to, or we could stand to bear more fruit in our spiritual lives. The parable of the sower is all about the call to those of us in the kingdom of God to faithfully produce more fruit. It's all about faithfulness and fruitfulness because our works will be judged. Now, at the same time, again, keep in mind, our salvation is secure. So don't be confused. Our salvation is secure, but our works will be judged and we will be given heavenly rewards or they will be withheld from us. One commentator puts it this way. If we prove to be unfaithful, while we will suffer the loss of rewards that we could have had, we will nevertheless enter the kingdom and enjoy our Lord and his people forever. I think that's a good way to look at it. That's comforting because none of us is perfect and we are all a work in progress. We are prone to failure. But now, what I don't want you to do is hear a quote like that and think to yourself, okay, good, I'm going to be a C-minus Christian. I'm going to do the bare minimum and just get by. I'm going to turn my homework in late. I'm going to use up all my tardies. I'm just going to get by as a Christian in life. No. Let's, let's strive to be A-plus Christians, okay? Not because we're simply looking to make the spiritual dean's list, okay? But because, here's the thing, bearing fruit is a sign that we are making a difference in the lives of others. Bearing fruit is a sign that we are looking out for the interest of others. Bearing fruit is a sign that we are being a good neighbor. Bearing fruit shows that we desire to be like Christ. That's why every one of us ought to strive to be A-plus Christians. We may not always get an A-plus, maybe an A-minus. That's okay. Sometimes a B. All right, sometimes a C-minus. That's okay too. But you add them all up, and hopefully we are improving in our spiritual grades because we desire to be more like Christ. This parable, may I suggest, is all about faithfulness and fruitfulness. The parable is not to cause us to question which of these four are saved. And oh, did I, did I lose my salvation? I don't think that that's the issue at hand. The main idea is faithfulness and fruitfulness. 
And that's encouraging because no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if you could answer that question, where is my faithfulness? How is my fruitfulness? Then that gives us motivation to be more like Jesus. Let's continue on to the second parable. Verses 21 to 25. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, you don't, or don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is known as the parable of the lamp. And it's important that we connect this parable with the previous parable. You see, remember Jesus said, in order to understand the rest of the parables, you have to understand this one. How can you not know this? You need to know this first one in order to understand the rest of the parables. There's a connection between this parable and the parable of the sower. Remember, parables are about stories within the kingdom of God. And Jesus shares this parable with his followers, and he asks them this rhetorical question, right? He says, you know, do you bring a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? And the reason why he asked that rhetorical question is this. Back then, lights were different than they are today. Okay, back then, lights were open flames. You would light a candle. And so it would be silly to put that candle under a bed. It would not only be silly, it would be dangerous. And so, of course, that's a rhetorical question. He said, of course not. You put it on its stand. It's like this, kind of like, you know, um, once upon a time, for those of us who used to go to concerts back in the day, where, let's say, the band would play a soft ballad in the arena. Do you know what a lot of people did? Right during the soft out, a lot of people would take out their, their cigarette lighters, right? And they, and they just kind of wave it back and forth, wave it back and forth, and create this ambiance in the arena. Today, what do we do? We just have our phones, right? We wave our phones, right? So light is very different today. Also, it's kind of like this. It's like back in the day, if you wanted the ambiance, the mood of a fireplace in your living room, well, you went and you, you know, you set the log on fire, right? Today you turn on the TV <laughs> and you come to a channel that has the, the fire going, right? And so lights today are different than lights of yesteryear. There were real flames back then. And so this was ridiculous for somebody to light a candle and put it under a bowl or certainly not under a bed. That would be ridiculous. The point is this. Light is meant to be displayed. And so when Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples then and now, what he was saying was this. For a time, things were not revealed. But they've been revealed. The concealed is now being disclosed. I came to earth, I ushered in the kingdom, 
but my time here on earth is short. Jesus' ministry lasted but three short years. And so his exhortation to his followers was to carry out the mission and be the light. Then and now. And so that's connected to the first parable, right? Because the first parable was all about what? Faithfulness and fruitfulness. The second parable, the parable of the lamp, is about his disciples being faithful and fruit-bearing in carrying out his mission. Let's continue on to the third and fourth parables. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And verse 33 says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The common theme in these final two parables is that of growth. The third parable is a good reminder that God is the one that does the growing. You know, in this parable, the man scattered the seed, but he didn't cause the seed to grow. That's God's job. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, in his first letter, that's why Paul said this. He said, I planted the seed. My friend Apollos, he watered it. But God has been making it grow. So church, what does that mean for us? Here at E-Free Church, God's calling us to sow seeds. He's calling us to water it. He's calling us to pray for the harvest. And then we trust Him to do the growing. This morning at Arco, seeds were being sown. When people come and visit, that seed is being watered as they learn about Jesus, as they learn what it means to follow Jesus. We gather together in our groups to pray for the harvest. But do we force the growth no. We leave that to God. That's God's job to cause growth. A farmer doesn't force his crops to grow. Parents, how do you get your kids to grow physically? You can't do it by commanding them, child, grow! Child, grow! You must grow! You don't force your child to hang in the closet on the rod. 
until your child stretches. That's silly. No. What do we do? We feed them good food, keep them healthy, pray for them, and then watch God do the growing. When I think about the legacy of our church for over 54 years, I want you to pause and think about that. For over 54 years, I'm reminded that God has raised up faithful stewards in every generation in the history of our church. Can I ask you a question? Was anybody here at the start of our church 54 years ago? Anybody? Good. Good. Nobody was here 54 plus years ago. Unless Jesus comes tonight or tomorrow or next week, the reality is none of us will be here later on in the next generations and generations and generations to come. What that means is for this season, God has called us to steward his church. And over the many seasons of the 54-plus years of our church's legacy, God has raised up faithful stewards with every generation. At the beginning of our series, back on March 6th, I gave you a takeaway statement. Do you remember? In the first week, I said, here's the takeaway. And it's been a few weeks, so I thought I'd remind us of the takeaway. The takeaway of the Gospel of Mark is this. It's true greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. And you've heard me share this before, that the one characteristic that I believe that best describes the leadership of our church over the many years is that of servanthood. That has best described the leadership of our church. The best leaders are humble leaders who serve out of love. And I cannot express enough how much I have appreciated the leadership of our church over all these years. And in order for us right now in this room, those watching online, this stewardship here, in order for us to steward God's church into the next generation, it's going to take every single one of us. Every single one of us. Now, I want to share with you, I want to take a moment to share with you one exciting way that you can do your part. This is an exciting way, a very practical way that you can do your part. Every so often, not very often, every once in a while, you might hear us talk about church membership here at E-Free Church. Church membership is a practical way to identify oneself with a local body. And really, in a sense, church membership is an expression of agreement of the local body's mission and values and vision. And also, practically speaking, church membership provides opportunities to, to serve 
in certain capacities and certain offices and also provides opportunity to take part in important church decisions throughout the course of the year. You heard us announce our next business meeting is April 24th. That's a very important business meeting. We would love to present some new members. Uh, and if you've not yet uh, become a member of eFree Church, I invite you to go to our website, efreedb.org slash membership. And you can read about all the details of membership. And can I, can I share a couple very encouraging stories about membership? Uh, it's possible that some of you have been part of our church for many, many years. And by the way, uh, membership is not required to find a home here at eFree Church. It is not required at all. Okay? And so we would love anybody to, to worship and call eFree Church their home. And uh, it's possible some of you have been here for many, many years. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a family who uh, had been part of our church for 30 plus years. And, but they had never officially become members. I think everybody thought they were members. And they weren't. And so uh, they applied for membership after 30-some years. And it was like at the, at the business meeting when uh, we, we voted them in, I think people gave them a standing ovation. <laughs> it, it's just amazing. Okay? And I was, I was thrilled with that story because it's possible that some people here think, well, you know, Tim, you know, I, I've been here for 20, 25 years. And, uh, I'd be embarrassed if people didn't know that I was a member. And if I applied after 25 years, I'd look bad. No, you would not. You would not. People would be thrilled. And then here's another great story. Just a couple weeks ago, there's a couple. And their family has been part of our church for only a matter of months, just a handful of months. And they applied for membership. And during the application process, you fill out some a form with some questions. And one of the questions we ask is this. Uh, you know, why would you like to become a member of eFree Church? It's a great question. It's an important question, right? Why would you like to become a member of eFree Church? And I got to tell you, I loved their answer. It was the perfect answer. Keep in mind, they'd only been here a handful of months. And both husband and wife answered that question by saying, E-Free Church is our home. It's the best answer. And so, whether you've been here for decades or a few years, maybe a handful of months, if you've found a home here at E-Free Church, would you prayerfully consider going to efreedb.org slash membership. Because it's a way to be able to identify with one another in the local body so that we can do our best to steward God's church into the next generation. Because when you and I have long moved on, this church, God willing, will continue to thrive. All we are are stewards. As we think about the, the last parable, the parable of the mustard seed, that, that encourages me so much because it, it shows us that 
something as big as God's kingdom, something as grand as God's kingdom, has such humble beginnings. All right, think about that. Jesus was born to working-class parents. When he began his ministry, his disciples came with not-so-great resumes. And together, they would change the world. Together, they would change the world. In church, God is calling us to do our part to change the world because we are followers of Jesus Christ. That is a daunting task. But he's calling us to faithfully steward his church so that the mission of Jesus can continue. And that, my friends, is what chapter 4 is all about. Faithfulness and fruitfulness.